0: The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Grove. If I haven't met you before, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Stoked that you are here today as we are continuing in our Not a Hostage message series. But before I even go there, how are we in the middle of August? Anybody else? Like, where did 2019 Go. But there's something that is bringing, you know, comfort to my soul is that football's back on TV. So there you go. And uh, before you know it, um, it'll be snow outside in Christmas, okay? You're welcome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, now this series has been a a great one. I would always encourage that if you miss any of them, it's so easy these days in the 21st century that you can catch up. Um, So you can go onto our website, grove.church. Click on the campus that you're a part of. If you didn't know this, uh, the Grove Church is one church, two locations, Marysville. We also have a campus in Snohomish. So you choose your campus, then you can find resources, and you can find the podcast and vodcast and get caught back up. But this series is a, a, some, something where we're taking a look at different ways and in different things where you and I, whether we're aware of it or not, can become hostages to certain things. Right, It's first based on the premise, and we opened up the series with the understanding that when we become followers of Jesus, we put our faith in him and our trust in him, we're not hostages anymore. Right? The Bible says that he who the Son, Jesus, sets free is free indeed. Right? The idea is that we live in freedom. We don't have to live as hostages to sin. We don't have to live as hostages to addictions, that there's freedom that can be found in that. And as an example, last week, uh, we talked about um, how you and I can become hostages to our feelings, Hostages to our emotions, that out of whatever feelings we have at any given time, any given moment, in any given situation, a lot of times it'll change our outlook. It, it rocks our faith and our beliefs, where the reality is, is it should be the opposite of that. Our outlook, our faith, our beliefs should take control of the emotions and the feelings that we have. And today we're going to examine another area that we can become hostages to, and it's how you and I have the privy, have the, uh, the tendency to become hostages from the killer of comparison, the idea that we compare ourselves and our situations to other situations, what we're gifted at, what our strengths are versus other people, and, and we can become hostages to that. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to take those out. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 to start today, Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 7. You could also use, the, there's some Bibles in the bottom of the seats in front of you that you can take and use, pull out that smartphone and open up that Bible app. But Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 is where we're going to start. And as you're turning there, I want to ask a couple rhetorical questions, not looking for you to raise your hands. So I want you to think about these. Um, and if you've ever compared yourself with someone else or felt like you didn't measure up, you might have thought something similar to this, not an exhaustive list, but just some examples. Maybe you've thought something along the lines of, well, why are they more blessed than us? Well, why does that family seem like they've kind of, everything just kind of seems to go right and man, our family just seems like everything falls apart and, and we've got all these issues. Well, why is that? Maybe you've asked or thought this question, why is he or she married and I'm still single, right? Well, why does that person, I mean, I've been waiting. I remember this is definitely something for me in my mid twenties, I was 25 years old. And I think for me, I know the age span changes now There's, you know, we're getting married a little bit older and older. But I remember that all of my friends were getting married at like 18, 19 years old. They started having kids, and I had like no hope in sight. I asked that question. God, what's wrong with me that I can't find somebody? So maybe you've thought those questions, or maybe you're thinking it now. Here's another one. Again, just examples. Man, why can't I have that body type, that body shape? Man, why do I, I got to struggle with, with what I have? I, I, we compare the way that we look compared to other people, and I'll tell you, I'm pushing 40. So... I need to get back in the gym and start eating a little better, right? Here's, oh, come on. Steve McKinley, not all of us can have the chiseled physique that you do, okay? All right, you're not helping, all right? Here's another one, just a few more. Man, man why did he get the job that I wanted? Why did they choose him over me? I mean, what does he have, what does she have that I don't have? And then this can play out in a million different ways with stuff that people have. But man, why can't I drive a car? Why can't I have that kind of house? Why can't I go on those types of vacations? And psychology has a term for this comparison, this idea and and this subject of comparison. They call it the social comparison theory. It's been around for decades. Ultimately, it's the idea that each of us are continually trying to ascertain our place in whatever social situation we might be in, whether it's school or work Family, dynamics, where do we fit? We're always trying to find where do I fit in here? What's my role? How do I fit into this scenario? And the truth is, is that each of us are uniquely impacted by this. It's not like either you are a person who allows yourself to be compared you know, to compare to other things and other people, or you don't, right? It, it, but uniquely, there's a span in between, meaning that we don't all experience it exactly the same. Let me just give you an example of what I'm saying, right? You might have a very super type A personality type of individual. Maybe this individual is very much an extrovert and even has narcissistic tendencies, right? Narcissism is known for, man, I'm the best. I've got it going on. I'm the most important thing. The world revolves around me. That individual might uniquely be impacted by this less than somebody else who is insecure or has a different personality type. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. Um, Two days ago, um, my family honored the memory of my dad who passed away in March uh, from cancer. And uh, he served in the military when he was young. He was in the army. And so we had a military service for him. And um, of course, when on days like that, you're, you're sharing memories about you know your loved one. And so both in the service and as family was together, we were sharing these things that we remembered about my dad. And in the context of this message, my dad was an individual, not a type A personality, not a super extrovert, but my dad, for whatever reason, at least, in his later years in life, didn't really care what people thought about him. He didn't make his decisions. And trust me, we, my brothers, remember I'm the youngest of seven. We had lots of political arguments about what we believed and what he believed, right? Lots of different things, but my dad just didn't really care what other people thought. He was just a salt of the earth kind of guy, take it or leave it, right? He was stubborn. That word came out in his memorial service, right? He was a lot of great things, but he was stubborn, right? I use that just as simply as an example to say that we're all uniquely impacted by this, and yet we are all impacted by this social comparison, and it works out in two ways, both the positive and the negative. The positive is the scenarios in which you and I look at somebody and we aspire to be like them, right? Where we look at characteristics or something that they've achieved, and on the positive sense, we want to be like them. And so in psychology, they list it as positive, although I will tell you that there's another filter to put some of those positive things through, which is a spiritual filter, Right. We can, we can aspire to be rich because somebody that we see is rich. We can aspire to be powerful because somebody else is powerful. That doesn't necessarily make it healthy in the spiritual context, but they can work out in a positive way. When we're young, we use the term of what we have heroes, right? Heroes that we look up to as adults. We don't like that term because it seems childish, but I have individuals that I look at that I aspire, in. man, I want to be a better dad like he is. I want to be a better husband like he is. I want to be, I want to be deeper and more spiritual than, than, you know, there's national speakers or pastors, right? We have these things that can work out positively, but there's also a negative aspect to it. And of course, in a series called Not a Hostage, we're going to focus on that negative social comparison that is happening all the time. Because when we compare ourselves, our situations to others on the negative sense, we become insecure with who we are. We feel less than and begin to doubt ourselves. And so for the context for today, I simply want to make this statement. I'll probably come back around to it at the end. But you and I can become hostages from reaching our potential or reaching God's design, destiny, and purpose for us when we compare and through the comparison to other people's success and strengths. We can look at what they've achieved and we can look at what they have, we can look at their giftings, we can look at their charisma, we can look at whatever it is, and we can become a hostage from reaching our purpose and potential through that comparison to their strengths and to their successes. And if you've ever felt that way, if any statement from the moment that we started today till right now resonates with you, questions you've asked, scenarios that play out in your mind, let me just say that you're not alone. Even some of the greats The heroes of the faith in Scripture struggled with the same exact thing as well. And I want to talk about three specific characters in Scripture where we see that they face the same exact comparison trap. And the first one is Moses. I had you turn there. It's Exodus chapter 3. And for my generation, when you say Moses, if you're thinking movies, you're probably thinking the Prince of Egypt, okay? For some of you, you hear Moses, if you're thinking movies, you might think of Charlton Heston raising up his staff and the Ten Commandments, Right? But when we think of Moses, we think of him as this courageous prophet, right, who stands in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the planet, the most powerful nation at that time on the planet, the greatest brilliant military minds, the greatest wealth, the most power was Egypt. And we think of him as this courageous prophet who stands in front of Pharaoh, declares the word of God and leads millions of people, The Israelites out of slavery, we see miracles and signs and wonders. That's what we remember because that's what happened. But if we remember the beginning of the story, it starts very differently, doesn't it? Right? Moses was an Israelite infant. When he was an infant, Pharaoh had put out a decree that all Israelite boys needed to be put to death. And so his family, to save him, put him in a basket and sent him down a river. And lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter was down at the water. She finds him, takes him, and raises him as one of their own, and he gets raised in the royal court. You fast forward a few years, and of course, he's, again, rubbing elbows with the most brilliant minds. He's got anything that he could ever want. He's got education beyond belief. He's seen the best of the best when it comes to leaders. And at one point, he's walking, and he comes across a scenario in which an Egyptian taskmaster is beating an Israelite and an anger rises up in him, and he actually ends up killing this Egyptian, realizes what he's done, buries him, and runs away out of fear. He runs away from everything he had and he runs away. We fast forward even a few more years. Where do we find him? He ends up being a shepherd, and he's out one day with his flocks, and he comes across this miraculous, incredible, wondrous moment when he comes and encounters a bush that's burning but's not being consumed. Right, It's on fire as if it has flames on it, and yet it's not withering, it's not turning black, it's not getting smaller, it's not being consumed. And it's a story that we pick up in Exodus 3, and I want to read this to you. And the Lord begins to speak to Moses through the bush, and it says, Then the Lord said, verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hibbites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. come. He says to Moses, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And you've got this incredible moment where God shows up in a miraculous way and audibly gets his attention and speaks purpose and destiny to him. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm kind of like God. I'm a little jealous because you don't talk to me that way. Right, my life is trying to figure out, God. I want to know what you want me to do. do, you, do is this the right path? Is this the right step? Is this the right job? What, what should I do? How do I become a better dad? How do I become? Right? I'm always asking the questions, God. What do you want me to do? And sometimes when I think I hear what He's saying, I'm also questioning. Well, is that the Spirit in me? Is that my flesh that really wants something? So I think it's God. Is it my mind? Is it my soul? Right? There's this conversation that goes on. Have you ever been in that place where you're wondering, God, is this really you? It's not you, Is it you? it's you, it's you, it's not you, it's me, it's not me, it's you, is it you? Moses has God show up in an incredible way, it gives him purpose and destiny. We don't have time today, but if you read through chapter 3, uh, Moses' initial response is, you've got the wrong guy. And God says, no, I will be with you. And he says, no, you've got the wrong guy. And God literally begins to lay out for him, this is what's going to happen, and then this is what you're going to do, and this is the the signs that are going to come, and then this plague's going to happen, and then you're going to go and do this, right? I mean, I just want God to show me what's going to happen next week. I mean, he lays the whole plan out for Moses. And it bleeds into chapter 4. There's a long discourse from that point to when we jump in in chapter 4, and I want you to hear this. This is kind of the tail end of that conversation, Exodus 4.10, and it says, But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and I'll teach you what you shall speak. And Moses responded in verse thirteen, "Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Man, I would kill for God to come down and just say, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. And I would like to believe that if one of us encountered a situation, we wouldn't be, well, is that you, God? Is it not you? Is it me? Uh," And do that whole thing. I know it's God, but Moses is like, his insecurity starts to come out. You need to remember, he had been raised and rubbed elbows with the best of the best, the most intelligent, the most eloquent. And out of his insecurity, out of his comparison, he says, "What? I am not eloquent of speech. I am slow of mouth and of tongue. In fact, many theologians believe that Moses had some form of a speech impediment, maybe a stutter. And so he comes to God with his weakness. even after God has said, "I called you, I've showed you, here's the steps, this is what's going to happen." He showed him a sign and wonder. Read it. It's a, it's a crazy story. And then he doubts himself. He even God even says to him, I'll, not only in chapter three, I'll be with you. He also says that in chapter four, I'll be with your mouth and with your tongue. The very weakness that you think you have, I will be with you in your weakness. But Moses is like, come on, send somebody else. You've got to have the wrong guy. Why? Because Moses' comparison is that I'm not skilled enough. Moses' comparison is I've seen the best. I've seen the elite. And man, it's not me. You, you've got to have the wrong Guy, his comparison that almost keeps him from his purpose and his destiny is an insecurity that he's slow to speech. And he doesn't think he's sealed enough. And God answers and says, but I will be with you. In essence, God's answer is Moses. It's not that you're good enough. It's that I'm good enough. I want to share another character. Why We fast forward just a few generations. You have the story of Gideon. Right, and just like Moses, Gideon is given the task of freeing the people of Israel from oppression. Instead of Egypt, this time it's the nation of Midian that was terrorizing Israel. And the Bible says that the people were hiding out in caves in the mountains to avoid being robbed by the Midianites. That's the fear that they lived in every day. And then when the people cried out to God for deliverance, sound familiar? It says, he answered. And so the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, and we pick this up in Judges, if you're taking notes, chapter 6, starting in verse 12. and says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord. If the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Here you have Gideon saying, I've heard the stories of Moses and Aaron. I've heard the stories of the Red Sea. I've heard these incredible elite men. But where have you gone? And he continues on, but now the Lord has forsaken us, Gideon says, and given us into the hand of Midian. It says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in all of Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. Sound familiar? And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So we've got this another incredible moment of God speaking, right? And he's talking to Gideon. He's giving him purpose and destiny. He's calling him to do something. And like Moses, Gideon has a response out of insecurity. What does he say? He says, my clan is the weakest in my tribe, and I'm the least in my family. In essence, he's saying, I'm a nobody. You've got, you've got the wrong guy. Do you, do you know who you're talking to? I'm nobody, He had heard the stories of Moses and Aaron. He had heard the stories about Joshua and Caleb taking the promised land against giants. He had heard about the greats and comparing himself to them, says, I'm the least, like, I I come from nothing. And so if Moses' insecurity was based on the idea that I'm not skilled enough, Gideon's insecurity was based on I'm not important enough. My family's broken. I'm nobody. Why would you choose me? And yet the Lord responds to him in the same way that he responds to Moses in verse 16. He says, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Gideon's comparison is, I'm not important enough. I want to give you one more. I want to give you a New Testament. It's the story of Peter. In fact, for most of us, who said this a lot, but I think it bears repeating. Is when you think about Jesus coming to earth, with this massive plan to bring disciples around him, and, and, and his mission ultimately changes the very fabric of time that we still feel the reverberations of Jesus' life and impact in so many ways. And you would think, after seeing him choose his team, like almost like you're out on the ball field, and you're, I'll take him, you take him, I'll take him. You're like, those are who you chose to be with you to change the world? I mean, they're a ragtag, I mean, to say bad news bears would be to understate it. Right? And Peter was one of these. Right, We know that Peter Peter was uneducated. After reading the gospel accounts, we know that Peter is impulsive, to say the least. He's a fisherman, low on the socioeconomic ladder of importance. And yet Jesus knows that one day, through Peter's ministry, thousands will come to salvation. And we see this story play out that before the crucifixion, Jesus is with his disciples and he basically is prophesying about what's to happen. And in this speech, he basically says, you're going to turn away from me and you're going to, some of you are going to deny me. And Peter almost interrupts him in the middle of this conversation. Jesus interrupts him. No, 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 Jesus, no. I will never turn away from you. I will never deny you. I will be with you no matter what. Brash Peter, speaking before he thinks. And we know the story plays out that sometime later he denies Jesus three times. He's not even there at the crucifixion when Jesus is put to death. For many of us, we can look at Peter and say, man, he failed Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. Not betrayed like Judas did, but, but man, he was not there. He didn't, he didn't, he wasn't, he was tested and he failed. But there's a beautiful story that after the resurrection, Peter and some other disciples ended up going back to the only thing they ever knew before, which was fishing. And they went back to the sea to fish. And we see this story in John 21, starting in verse 2, if you're taking notes but just listen it says this simon peter thomas called the twin nathaniel of cana and galilee the sons of zebedee and two others of the disciples were together simon peter said to them i'm going fishing and they said to him well we'll go with you and they went out and got into the boat but that night they caught nothing and just as day was breaking jesus stood on the shore and yet the disciples did not know that it was jesus and jesus said to them children do you have any fish and they answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, and that's referring to John. John says to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. And he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they're not far from land, about 100 yards off. And so there's this moment after the failure, after, after the way that Peter must have felt denying Jesus. As as uh, Jesus had been arrested, he was traveling around in the city and people would see him and say, hey, you, you were with Jesus. I saw you. No, it's not me. You're thinking of somebody else. right? Out of fear, he's denied him. He remembers all of this. And then there's a moment when he sees Jesus and he recognizes and understands it's him. He says, I'm not waiting for the boat to get in. I'm jumping in the water and I'm getting there as quickly as I can. And what transpires after this is that they have breakfast together. And we pick this up in verse 15. And it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said, feed my lambs. And Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said, tend my sheep. And then Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. And in the moment where Peter is probably feeling at his lowest, Jesus brings him back up and reminds him of his purpose and his calling. Notice how Jesus asks him if he loves him three times. It's almost as if he's given Peter a second chance to prove what he had known before while at the same time recognizing the sin that Peter had made a mistake. He had denied him, turned away from him, didn't stand in the test and didn't pass that test. But Jesus brings him back up and reminds him, your purpose is to feed my lambs, tend to my sheep. What is he talking about? Not flocks, not animals, you and me. It says the Bible talks about Jesus as the good shepherd and that we are his sheep and sheep know their shepherd's voice. He's reminding Peter of his purpose that I have called you to do something incredible in the start and the expansion of the first century church. And where Moses' comparison is that I'm not skilled enough and Gideon's comparison is that I'm not important enough, Peter's comparison was as I am not worthy enough. My sin, my denial, my turning on him when I should have been there, I am unworthy to do this. And in all reality, he probably thought his ministry years were over after what he had done, and then Jesus comes and says, no, I still have purpose in you. You and I can become hostages from reaching our calling and our purpose through comparison to others' successes and strengths. Some of you in here might have thought of one of these or feel multiple of them. Man, I, I, I'm not skilled enough. Ryan, you say that God wants to use me, but I can't lead worship like Jordan leads worship. I can't. I don't know my Bible well enough. I mean, there's people all around me that are better spe- I, I, I Man, I'm terrified to get up in front of people and speak. Like, I'm not skilled enough. Some of us are under this impression of comparison like, you don't know my family I mean, we're broken, and it's, it's riddled with divorce. And I've got family members who, in, who are in prison. Man, I'm not important enough that God would use me. There's a lot of better people out there. And for some of us, like Peter, we say, Ryan, you don't know where I've been. Man, you don't know the things I've done. Then I am not worthy enough to be used. And these comparisons keep us from stepping into our purpose And into our destinies. The Bible says many things about this idea of comparison. I want to read you two scriptures. The first one is this, Romans 12.6. says that in this way, we are like various parts of the human body. Each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people, you and me. Each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of the body but as a chopped-off finger or a cut-off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? So since we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts in Christ's body, let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something that we're not. Galatians is another one, chapter 6, 4 through 5, it says this, Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work that you have been given and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Don't become a hostage to comparison. I love you enough to tell you this. And I'm not saying this to placate. I'm not saying this because it's the right thing for a pastor to say. I tell you this because I absolutely believe it with every fiber of my being. You have purpose and destiny. Not to make a million dollars, not to do all of those things, but to move the mission of Jesus forward. You have purpose. You've compared yourself at times to say, I'm not skilled enough. There's somebody better than me. You've compared yourself to others and said, man, my family's a mess. I'm nobody. Who would even know me? Nobody knows my name. Nobody would ever choose me for this. Some of you are thinking, man, I am unworthy. Ryan, I have sinned so much, there's no way. Can I tell you on that point, none of us are worthy. The greatest person that you could put to say, man, if I could be like that, then I I would feel like I, I could do it, that person is just as unworthy as you are. Sin is sin. We rate it on a scale of what's bad and what's worse. Sin is sin to God, is what the Bible says. We are all unworthy, The only worthiness we have comes from him when we give him our sin and say, I'm a man or a woman in need of a savior. I am messed up. I screw up all the time. I've made mistakes, but I give it to you, and he gives us righteousness in return. And I simply want to close with this statement, with a story, and I'll be done. For some of us, we hear, like the story that we read, if you missed it last week, go back and listen to it, but the story of Paul. The story of Paul in prison, one of the worst scenarios you could possibly imagine being in. Really tough for us to imagine as we sit in comfy seats with warm chocolate chip cookies and coffee. But if we put ourselves in that spot, that is like the worst place you could imagine being. Most likely, I mean, for him to try to sleep at night on an uneven stone floor. I mean, I get cranky when my Tempur-Pedic doesn't do what I want it to do, Right? right, he's probably not got great food. In all reality, he's probably being tortured or beaten, and he absolutely is facing the possibility and probability that he might die because he was preaching Jesus. And he makes a statement in that place, in prison, one of the most powerful ones for me in all of the New Testament. He said, regardless of all of this, the most important thing is that the mission of Jesus moves forward. Regardless of my circumstance, by life or by death, the most important thing is that the mission of Jesus moves forward. And here's the thing. There's a disconnect for you and I. And I don't want this statement to come as condemnation because I understand we're all in process. I want you to hear me. Please look at me. I understand that you might be here for the very first time, somehow walked in these doors, had an invitation, you don't know about Jesus, you're trying to find your way. On the other end of the extreme, you might have been following Jesus for 40, 50, 60 years and you're here or somewhere in the middle. I'm not saying that we aren't in process. I want to make sure that stays in context. But some of us have been following Jesus for a really long time. And yet there's this disconnect from understanding or believing that God has called us and given us purpose to make a difference in ministry. We think of the mission of God as ministry. Well, that's for somebody else. I'm not a pastor. I'm not trained. That's, I mean, ministry, Paul's statement becomes a question for you and I. Regardless of the circumstance, regardless of whatever it is we're facing, do we answer that situation that says, regardless, the most important thing, is that the mission of Jesus moves forward. And there's this disconnect. Because there's churches, especially in America, all over, where we're great, even know Jesus love him, giving our lives to him, but we come and we sit in a seat. We're great observers. Some churches, man, it's about entertainment. And they got fog and they got lasers and they got lights and they got the best band in the world. And their sound system's top-notch and their speaker dress is super hip. But there's no change. There's no engagement. There's no, I'm a part of this. There's this disconnect that takes place. I want to tell you a story and I'm done. When I was 12 or 13 years old, my brother, I'm the youngest of seven, remember, my closest sibling's 10 years older than me, so they're much older than I am. He was a teacher at Ording High School. And in the summertime, he'd grab me and a bunch of friends from my neighborhood, also some students that he knew at school. He'd open up the gymnasium in the summertime We'd go play pickup basketball. We'd play dodgeball. Of course, I mean, when you're a kid that age like me, it's like you can't drive anywhere. You get bored in the neighborhood, right? Man, to go do that, that sounds like a blast. So we'd go and do it. And then the last 10 or 15 minutes, he'd share a message with us, a gospel message or a message of hope or, or a challenge to us as young men. And I remember one of these, I could tell you almost so many details from that day. It's kind of crazy. But I remember the message that he shared was on the truth of the power of the tongue to bring life or death. And I remember some of the friends that I brought with me from my neighborhood were not saved, parents didn't go to church. But I remember them nodding their head, like, yeah, this, this makes sense. I get it. Fast forward a few hours later that evening. This is middle of the summer, of course, so it stays light till 10 o'clock, and you play basketball outside, you know, while it's light outside. And we were playing basketball. And like happens often with 12- and 13-year-olds, at least it did for us, this competition got a little hot. And two of my friends get into it with each other start fighting. Both of them had been there that day. And one of them was going off. I mean, the things that he was saying, I mean, they they make me sick to even think about it, not just cuss words, but I'm talking just, just whatever. And I said, I said, I said, you were there with us today and we're all sitting hearing this message about not being using profanity and building people up and not tearing them down. And, and here we are only a few hours later and you're, you're doing this, man. Like what's up? And he said something then, yes, he's 12 or 13 years old. But some of us in this room and in this church, we still have this disconnect some reason inside of us. He said, Ryan, that's all great. I mean, that stuff sounds all good. But this is real life. And somehow for us, we've disconnected our spiritual lives from our regular lives. That church stuff is great. Being a better husband is great. Moving the mission of Jesus sounds great, but this is the real world. I got bills to pay and things to do, and I got problems, and I got these things going on. And the truth is this, that I want to remind you, your purpose and your destiny isn't just to be successful at whatever you're doing. You are called, like Paul said, to move the mission of Jesus forward. And the comparisons that have been holding you back, you've been lied to. Jesus wants to use you. You, you have a gift. You're a part of the body. Doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter what you've seen, doesn't matter how bad you've sinned, doesn't matter if you're worthy, doesn't matter if you're skilled enough and doesn't matter if you're important enough. He wants to use you. Here's the promise and I'm done. I promise you that if you press into him, spend time with him, read the word and pray and say, "God, I just want to know if you're real. Where am I missing it? Whether this is your first day or you've been in church for 50 years. God, what is my purpose? What is my destiny?" I promise you as you press in, he will press in back to you. The secular world asks this question, what's the meaning of life? The true answer is spiritual, that we move the mission of Jesus forward. That's the question, no matter my circumstance, good or bad, that's the mission, that's the purpose. And you have a purpose and you have a destiny, amen? Let me pray for you, God, we thank you for that truth. God, I pray for some that are here, I just have a sense that there literally are things where people have been told lies, they've believed lies their whole lives, that they're not good enough, that they don't belong, that you wouldn't want to use them, they don't have any gifts. But God, I pray that you would tear away the lie and replace it with the truth that you have called all of us to be a part of your body. You've gifted all of us to make a difference, to move the mission of the church, which is spreading the news of your son Jesus as far and wide as we can. God, we pray that you would seal that truth in some hearts today as individuals, as couples, and as families. God, we want to be different when we leave today than when we came in. God, speak that truth to us in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.